Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Monday, April 25th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, letting you know that though this is the podcast for Monday, the 20, 25th, we're actually recording it Sunday night, the 24th, so you are listening to Commentary Magazine After Dark. This is what happens when we let our hair down, we sit, we drink our coconut-flavored seltzer, and we really get down and personal with it. I think you're Listening setting us up for down. failure. They're going to expect oh, a no lot doubt. more of us than they're going to get. That's a good late-night radio <laughs> voice you've got going on. Thank though, you very much. I'm the say. quiet. I'm John Bonhorts, the quiet storm. And with me here tonight on the quiet storm, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hey, John. We say hey <laughs> in the evening. You say hey. That's good. Christine Rosen. Hi, John. Hey, Christine. <laughs> and associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hey, John. See, I think we should do an art we're, bell for we're smooth. Talk aliens. Talk about aliens? Okay. <laughs> I don't uh, believe in aliens. I am very disturbed by, uh, I do think, however, that if we're going to talk about aliens, we we really should discuss the question of I have nothing to say about aliens. So let's move on That's why you take from the talking about aliens. Oh, we take a call. We don't have any calls. So and now we're going to talk about a subject about which we know nothing. Because that's what we do here on the commentary magazine nightly podcast, commentary after dark. As I speak, it's a couple of hours after the closing of the polls in France, not a couple of hours, seven hours after the closing of the polls in France, uh, in the runoff between uh, uh, President Emmanuel Macron and uh, insurgent uh, nationalist right leader Marine Le Pen. Um, while for a moment it looked like Le Pen was maybe challenging Macron's second term uh, in a way that was going to be the earthquake of all earthquakes in European politics, maybe since the Second World War, I'm not even sure that anything would quite match a victory of a nationalist rightist uh, from a political family very much associated with the anti-democratic and indeed sort of uh, flirting with neo-Nazi ideas, uh, Marine Le Pen's father, among others. Um, but in fact, it appears, according to exit polls, that Macron has won with 58% of the vote to like something like 41% for Le Pen. So there are two ways of looking at this result, one of which is he won a landslide. Uh, the charge of the nationalist right in France has been retarded. The other way to look at it is that uh, Le Pen... Uh, gained about six points on her total last time and Macron lost eight points off his total. And so the margin then, which in 2017 was 30 points or something like that is now down to 17. And uh, that's not good because it suggests, or it depends. I, I'm, I'm casting a value judgment here. It means 
that uh, the once unthinkable success of the nationalist right in France is now uh, getting increasingly thinkable. One possibility. The other possibility is that Macron is not a popular politician. Uh, he was registering somewhere in the mid-30s in his approval rating and nonetheless wildly outperformed his approval rating by 22, 23 points because the French people do not want to elect uh, uh, Le Pen. Um, leading, Noah, to an interesting tweet by Ronald Klain, White House Chief of Staff to President Biden, which you highlighted, I believe, earlier. Tonight. Yeah, I'm just kind of, I don't, I don't know enough about French politics to talk about it with any authority, but I know Ron Klain doesn't. And he seems to be grasping at this straw just as you outlined it, because <clears throat> he said an interesting observation, just FYI. President Macron appears to have secured a double digit victory over Le Pen at a time when his approval rating was 36 percent. Hmm. I'm adding that he actually wrote the hmm. Um, so, I mean, yeah, obviously the, uh, the message here, to the extent there is a message, is a really unpopular president a really unpopular political figure can win if he's facing somebody who's even more unpopular. Shocking revelation there. We don't even really know. I mean, I don't know what the value of French polls are because they seem to have um, sort of missed this race, although they seem to be they were widening as Election Day neared. But um, exit polls being what they are, 42 percent of Macron voters said that their number one goal was voting against Le Pen, not necessarily for Macron. So Ron Klain's right insofar as, yes, if a really unpopular figure were to arise in 2024 to challenge Joe Biden or whoever replaces him, that they would have a tough go of it. But it's not really a profound observation. And we all know who he's talking about. Well, and, and historically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the French actually hate incumbents, whereas we tend to incumbents for president in this country tend to do better. It's an easier, easier uh, uh, run for an American president who's already in office to run for reelection yeah. versus in France. In the last half century, only two French presidents have won second terms. I mean, uh, Macron now being the third. So um and if you think back in American history, obviously, a president is more likely than not to win a second term. So um, French president, of course, an uncommonly powerful office uh, with almost complete control over French foreign policy, very little oversight by the uh, by the legislature, uh, less so in domestic policy. And that makes the French president a real player on the national stage. And the international stage, because he is so powerful and because he can kind of make choices almost at will about committing French forces and uh, and where French what 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 how France is going to use its its uh, military power, which which remains quite significant, uh, and we sort of forget this. And not only does it remain significant, but even uh, very left-wing French figures like François Mitterrand, who was a socialist, the first socialist to get elected president, uh, had no compunction whatsoever about using uh, sort of the exercise of French military power in ways that were defiantly anti-liberal in, in, or anti-the leftist consensus in the 1980s. You know, he sort of <laughs> sank a, an environmentalist ship 
He committed troops in Chad. I mean, he was he was a pretty belligerent and serious defender of France's unilateralist foreign policy and the idea of projecting France's power. Now that was four decades ago, um, and obviously the world has changed, but the world hasn't changed that much. And indeed, we're of course go, we're we're in a we're in a place where there is a war on the European continent, and how France reacts to that is, of course, very important. And Marine Le Pen's closest international ally was Vladimir Putin, uh, her closest international, I don't know, what, what, ally is not the right word because she's not, whatever you want to call her, a mentor. Endorser. <laughs> endorser, right. Um, so that's another thing that France was voting against, right? It was voting against a rapprochement or a friendly or closer relationship with Russia by 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 reelecting Macron at a pretty uh, pretty critical time. Uh, I it was interesting to note that Macron said something that that uh, I I think Biden attempted to do in his inaugural address, but certainly hasn't governed as such. And he he seemed to kind of acknowledge Macron did that. A lot of the votes that came his way to give him victory were uh, not the other person votes, not not very enthusiastic voters for Macron. And he said, you know, now I, I understand this. And now I'm you know, I, I understand that I have I'm the president of everyone kind of line. I mean, it doesn't determine anything about how he's going to govern. But the idea that was kind of what a lot of people ended up voting for Joe Biden for. And as we've seen, the reason he's at 36 percent and Ron Klain, uh, Ron Klain's wish casting notwithstanding, it's because he didn't govern that way. He didn't govern as if he understood why a lot of people voted for him. I think, you uh, know, go ahead. It, I mean, I, I understand when when uh, people who are elected say that sort of I will take the concerns of the of the the supporters of my opponent uh, seriously and, you know, going forward. Um, but I think the problem with that in this age is that I don't think you can throw a, a bone at people who want maximalist politics these days. Uh, they and even in fact, even if you did sort of what they wanted explicitly, um, they tend not to accept it because it's from you and not their person and not in exactly the way that they want it. So I'm I'm I so I'm naturally I'm on the 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 sort of concern side about uh, Le Pen having gained points and and Macron having lost some points, not because I I'm an expert on French politics, but because I do think that the this wave of maximalist politics and of and of um, populism is ongoing uh transnational and with the war on the continent i i expect it to get worse we actually I, that the, go ahead just briefly oh, sorry. that's a <clears throat> those are a lot of very good points and the last one i i think is actually worth noting because tonight as well slovenia has had a uh an election where you had a, a similar nationalist figure who was never very much in contention but lost and so we've seen this sort of wild whiplash swing in popular opinion that <clears throat> you've been talking about you mentioned a because we talked about this i think two weeks ago after the, the uh, initial race that resulted in this runoff and there was this intense uh general in the in the uh sentiment among the commentariat there was a really despair over the direction of the potential for uh, the french election to go the other way and just despair over the march of populist nationalism and especially in the wake of orban's re-election that it was just 
it couldn't be stopped. And now, you know, the exact opposite reaction is is overtaking the commentary class where it's, oh, you know, democracy is fighting back and liberal, uh, you know, liberal egalitarianism is again on the march. And both of these reactions seem really just emotional and un, un, untethered to, to events to, to a degree that it, that actually makes the concern sort of some you wonder whether the concern is genuine and valid if you're if you are this easily moved by ephemera look if the war in ukraine is an epical event we don't know if it is yet um but if it is an epical event or a defining event that's sort of a moment where we will say that what what came after is different from what came before then obviously there will be a discontinuity of some sort in you know, what has been going on. In other words, if there's been a kind of drift toward, let's say, more nationalist, more isolationist, more extremist, uh, more, um, you know, how that maximalist politics uh, Abe is talking about, either this will accelerate it wildly if it's an epical event, or it's going to kill it off, or, or, or choke a lot of the oxygen off toward it. Um, I think we've seen a little bit of that in the weird disjunction between the conservative intellectual class in the United States, which has grown ever more uh, interested in flirting with a lot of this, and the reaction of the Republican or conservative electorate or body politic, which has expressed a far more conventional internationalist uh, belief in the projection of American power and involvement in, in, in this, in this crisis. Uh, None of that has slowed the role of this intellectual sort of movement on the right, but it will, I mean, it will kill it off if the American people and, and, and if, if it is seen that the commitment to Ukraine and to, our involvement in Ukraine was a positive, that we did good, that we were on the right side, uh, and that uh, we we got it right by 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 involving it by involving ourselves in this way. And indeed, it's more likely that Republicans will come to feel, I believe, that Biden didn't do enough. Then, uh, as you're seeing from these people, the idea that Biden is on the verge of doing way too much, that we should have kept our powder dry. What are we doing here? This is all these discredited internationalists pushing America into this involvement in something where, look, we know in the end Ukraine's going to be chopped up and agreed to being divided and, and, and sliced in half. So why are we even going to commit blood and treasure to it? That's us. I think all across Europe, you're seeing this very interesting fight going on in Germany where, uh, where uh, a lot of people are now calling out the German government and saying that they're full of it when they dis- when they said they were going hard line against Russia in the other direction that they're not doing it they're not sending arms they talked a good game but they're but they are keeping their powder dry that the entire German political class has been corrupted and become complicit in Putinism and that it's kind of fighting a rearguard action against this supposed you know sort of new uh, awakening to the dangers of russia so there's a lot of there's a lot up in the air 
and the next 12 months are going to be critical. The French election is the first moment at which I guess there was a kind of moment of choosing where you really could have seen, I suppose, a result that would say, man, there are a lot of people on the continent who aren't that uncomfortable with Putin because they just pick Putin's, you know, cat's paw in, in France as their presidential candidate. But I do think that your nervousness, Abe, is warranted because 41% is a lot of voter. I mean, it's okay. It's it's four out of 10 versus six out of 10 in the other way. But, you know, it's not comfortable seeing, you know, the, uh, you know, the uh, popular front figure getting 41% of the vote. That that's, that's, that's a lot of vote. I mean, and, and again, it's all about whether or not you know, we're going from 20% to 30% to 40% and where will it be in the next election? But I think it's impossible to tell because, and this, this goes to Ron Klain's point also, though he is making it incompetently. It's a long time between now and 2024 and that Biden might be unpopular in 2024 doesn't in and of itself mean that he's going to lose if he runs again despite everything trump was incredibly unpopular in 2016 and won he was the most unpopular political figure america had ever seen in some calculations i mean with a personal and personal unfavorability rating over 60 percent and yet he got you know 46 percent of the vote um so i think it's very it's just we're in an interestingly unsettled moment. It's got to be careful about interpreting these results too much, except, you know, I I just think you got to breathe a sigh of relief that Marine Le Pen didn't, didn't win. I think it was interesting, by the way, that the this right that I'm talking about, this sort of, you know, neo-isolationist right, they were hoping that they weren't, it wasn't going to come down to this with, uh, with Le Pen, that there was this third way person, Zamor, who was running, and a lot of people who are, you know, very knowledgeable and literate about about um, French politics, like uh, my my friend Chris Caldwell and others, were fascinated by Zamor. He was a new kind of plain spoken nationalist, but pro Israel, you know, sort of like and uh, and open about his commitment to western civilization all sorts of things that made him supposedly like a thrilling new possibility and she just she just crushed the life out of him in the end like like a lot of people like this like he was like the andrew yang of uh you know of french politics and when finally push came to shove he got i don't know what he got nine percent ten percent of the vote like he was it was he was not a serious contender uh, so the fact that they, you know, they that kind of thing happened, that's a classic thing in intellectual politics where people get like thrilled with a choice that seems like a clever third choice. We can go vote for John Anderson, you know, where we can vote for the social Democrats in Britain. You know, we can we can really there's a there's a there's another way. And then in the end, there really there really isn't isn't another way that you basically have your <laughs> you basically have to pick. Uh, one or the other of two, even if the choices are are are, are relatively unpleasant. I I hope uh, that um, 
people understand that as we are doing commentary after dark that uh our level of blather versus hard detailed knowledge has has gone up like 50 percent because you know if you like if you like ask me where macron was strong versus where you know and geographically where you know where where le pen was strong i you know my entire knowledge of france outside paris comes from movies you know i sort of know marseille is sort of down there and you know there are these areas up over there and then there's like where they they make wine and here's champagne and here's bordeaux and you know so it's uh so i'm glad you're i'm glad you're you're easing into listening to us and you should know that you should go somewhere <laughs> somewhere else <laughs> for really really deep knowledge it's just we got to talk about the the news and uh you know who has deep knowledge is our friend david bonson he has deep knowledge of economics of the of uh of um theology of uh of uh western civilizational thinking and he brings it all to bear in his amazing book there's no free lunch 250 economic truths a daily primer about ordered liberty and economic liberty and freedom and uh belief in god and how all of these things knit together to make uh have made sort of the capitalist american experiment the freest and noblest experiment that has ever been seen on earth and how if you really want to understand it you explore the ideas of leading thinkers in economics in in philosophy in uh theology to come to an understanding of the interplay of these forces that's there's no free lunch 250 uh, truths by david bonson b-h-n-s-e-n uh, who runs the bonson group with three and a half billion dollars under management you can get that book at amazon barnes and noble or wherever you get your books you can get them okay what are we what are we Wait, uh, john i just want to say yes. something about your your uh professed your admission okay. of, of uh, a lack lack of french politics expertise yes. and all of ours who cares you're <laughs> the one who said weeks ago that all the everyone pulling their hair out over Lupin was was much ado about nothing. I mean, I'm, not, I'm exaggerating. You say much right. about nothing, but but you you sort of foresaw this this happening. Uh, Macron winning along the lines that he did. Well, okay, so I will say this, which is that the the result of the of the of the first uh, you know of the the election that led to the runoff was very similar to the result in 2017 before macron won this blood election in 2017 that uh that uh she got 24 percent uh in 20 in 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 2022 and she'd gotten 21 percent in 2021 so there was some growth there but you know he, he they're basically in the same position i will say that you know his number really did come down and her number really did go up in the second tally right she had been at 36% she got to 41 he was at 66 or something he got down to 58 so it's not as though she didn't end up stronger it's just that the idea that that result meant oh my god she's she's charging and she's really you know she's really going to blow this out it just seemed Im immensely similar as a matter of logic you know to to the results in the previous election and there there i was right so it's very nice of you to give me a victory lap i will spare you i could 
sing, you know, I could sing uh, Maurice Chevalier or Serge Gainsbourg or something to show that I have some French cultural knowledge or the umbrellas of Cherbourg or something like that. But I'm all I'm saying is that you don't you don't you don't come to this podcast for deep deep reflections on you know on on French pop. Oh, I will say that one of I think I've mentioned this uh, last year we were talking about this that um, out of nowhere I decided to read. A Tale of Two Cities, the single most popular novel ever written, according to many sources, the best-selling novel ever written, Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. And the uh, third, the concluding third of that book is one of the most remarkable pieces of imaginative writing that's ever been done. It's a portrait of France during the during Robespierre's terror. Um, and it's just absolutely astounding. We have an essay in the current issue of Commentary the May issue of commentary by Joseph Epstein about Thomas Carlyle, the say the Victorian weird freelance sage, um, whose work, the French revolution was one of the most important works of the 19th century and was the inspiration for Dickens's, uh, portrait of the terror, uh, in, in tale of two cities. This is a wonderful piece. I really commend it to your attention. It's called, Sage Carlisle or Carlisle Sage? I can't remember which which one. <laughs> I can't remember. Sage Carlisle. Sage Carlisle. So it's at on our website at commentary.org. And while it will not inform you about Macron and, and Le Pen, it will. It is a beautiful essay about you know uh, a remarkable personality and a remarkable thinker of the past whose whose ideas about freedom and liberty and barbarity and all of that really do still resonate today. So please, please take my advice and read Joseph Epstein's essay. Uh, again, Sage Carlisle. Okay. <laughs> we, 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 we were, we were fooling around with the title. So, uh, and I'm, I'm getting old, so I, I can't quite remember where, where we, where we ended up. Um, so where should we go now? Uh, Big hubbub on the right about uh, the Florida legislature and Ron DeSantis uh, sort of doing Ron DeSantis's bidding and revoking Disney's special uh, tax area called the Reedy, what is it, Reedy Park Improvement District, something like that. That Reedy Creek, Reedy Creek, excuse me, right? That is the uh, that gives Disney all kinds of land use. Uh, rights and uh, authorities uh, on the area that where where Walt Disney World is. Um, I'm not in the habit of talking about other podcasts. There was a fantastic conversation about this on the editors of the National Review podcast on Friday uh, with um, Charlie Cook, resident of Florida, uh, Michael Brendan Doherty, and uh, Rich Lowry all kind of contesting, talking a lot about this question of whether or not uh disney's involved in deciding to involve itself in a partisan matter in florida uh served as sufficient machiavellian justification for ron DeSantis and the republicans in florida to say whoa whoa, whoa buddy if you're gonna screw around in our politics we're not going to take this lying down um, we're sending a message to everybody 
if you get corporate tax, you, you fool around in Florida, stay out of our business, or we're going to come at you with a two by four. And, uh, and that, and that's, that's, that's what happened. I am, uh, very much alone, I think on this podcast in kind of thinking that there is merit to this as a practical political, uh, event. Um, but I, I am also convinced by uh, Charlie Cook and Michael Brendan Doherty's arguments that uh, there was something very unprincipled and, and and constitutionally dangerous going on here. And Noah, I think you're kind of where they are. Yeah, and I always have been. Um, we've talked a lot about the technical aspects of this and the tactics around it and the justifications for it philosophically, morally, constitutionally, legally. Um, and all that's... You know, I, I made my piece. I think that's um, all, none of it is justified. I don't think this is a justified maneuver at all in any of those forms. And I think it's much more likely to backlash on DeSantis and Florida Republicans in particular. It's just also um, it's it's like all culture warring through legislative mechanisms, not going to achieve what its proponents want it to do. They don't want to take away the, the municipal services and the tax collection that this place does and duplicate those services and, and impose a thousand dollar tax burden on the, the residents of these two counties. That's not what they want to do. They want to change corporate culture in Disney. And that's not going to happen as a result of this legislation. That's what they think they're achieving by, by putting a lot of pressure on Disney here. They think that's a lot of pressure. It's not a lot of pressure, uh, not on this corporation. It's a gigantic corporation. They're not even going to feel this. Um, but it will impose, uh, it will raise the stakes. It will um, push a lot of chips in for a lot of voters who think something's going to be achieved as a result of this, and it won't be. And that creates a sense of uh, dissatisfaction and disaffection with politics that's ultimately um, self-defeating because it, it creates and imbues a sense of fatalism in people who really want to see culture wars meted out through uh, politi politics and legislative affairs. And that's just not how it works. Okay, so here's my here's my defense of the action. Again, I'm not even making a this defense is kind of um, like a stumble bum Machiavellian defense, okay, or like a cheap shot Machiavellian defense, which is you can't have corporations going around siding with one political party over the other and not having the political party against which they have sided or whatever <laughs> against which they have moved uh not respond to the decision to come off the sidelines and become a partisan player corporations are you know, assemblages of people, uh, their stockholders, they're all sorts of things. Um, but the initial impulse of the CEO of Disney was to stay out of it. And the culture war aspect of what was going on was that the creative community of Hollywood demanded that he come off the sidelines. And because he was a weak, he is a new weak figure who does not have the respect um, of the creative community that he must work with. He found the pressure intolerable and gave in since it was clear from the outset, he didn't want to give in. He wanted to stay on the sidelines and under those circumstances, 
were the Florida Republicans to do nothing? I'm 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 literally asking you this question as a matter of like yeah I mean well they were supposed to okay. push through the push through the bill which well the bill was already the, pushed wait, 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 through yeah yes the answer is yes John they pushed through the bill they won they won a contested national issue out of this Florida bill they 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 were victorious and then they got sucked into this again a legislative battle that they they can't win that's not going to achieve what they want to achieve yes if you're an adherent to the idea of limited government the idea is to do nothing because yes corporations can say whatever the heck they want and you don't punish them legislatively because they said something you don't like but that, okay, that, that's where it's the the culture war versus the political war are two kind of taking two different tacks here i think and this is why there's a lot of anger and confusion in, in, including on the right you know lots of lots of disagreement because Every most of the people on the right understood that when Chick-fil-A was kicked out of airports, that was bad. Right. When Masterpiece Cake Shop was told he had to make a, a gay marriage wedding cake, that was bad. When Hobby Lobby was, you know, challenged, that was bad. So where does that fit in here? I mean, partly it does fit in here because conservatives trying to uh, demand their own space to do their own thing will be undermined by this, I think. I think that part of the argument, Charlie's, uh, Charlie Cook's argument and, and, and what you're saying here, Noah, is correct. But then uh, legislatively- all those, they, all those examples, I think the jurisprudence erred on the side of limited government, that they were being right. induced into doing something by, by coercive force of the public sector that the constitutionality, they had no obligation to do. Well, and it was speech in, the, in, in, in many of those cases, right? The, and this is a little- different. I mean, I agree. I don't think that they, I think because they won with the legislation, it would have been better to just let all the, you know, the crazy Disney employees kind of like what the Netflix employees did to Dave Chappelle, like let them, let them get out there and act like crazy people. It will show consumers who then can vote with their feet to, you know, get rid of Disney if they want to not, not use Disney products to just say no. Um, so I'm a little uncomfortable with it as a, as a cultural culture war battlefront, but as a political issue for DeSantis, I mean, I think I said this the other week, it's a gamble for him. And I think in the short term, it, it's, it's paying off, giving him some, you know, populist uh, uh, cred, street cred. Long term, who knows? I mean, we know he has uh, ambitions, so I'm not sure in a couple of years that this will look like a wise decision for him. Disney and Florida are going to spend a year negotiating over this and coming to some kind of concord, right? Because right. the because the removal of the the Reedy Creek Improvement District was post dated a year. And I think it's clear that what that means is they they don't want to remove. They actually don't want to remove it because, as 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 Charlie said on the podcast, like. Disney now knows how to deal with alligator, like alligator control on its property. And Osceola County doesn't know how to deal with that or doesn't know how to deal with the vermin, how to control vermin in that area. And they have it all wired and have it solved. And they have a private workforce that deals with all of that. And now they will not have that private workforce and Osceola County will have to pick it up. And in the end, they're going to, everybody's going to want there to be Concord. I'm bringing up something a little different, which is can't Disney decided that it was going to, as I say, play a role or play even a, just a symbolic role in a live 
a live political issue in Florida and make and thereby make an enemy of one of the two parties in Florida by by playing by by raising its hand and getting involved as just a matter of human you know of politics at its core the republicans had to respond i'm not talking about winning the victory of the of of the of the parents rights bill which is a secondary issue here because they won that it's that disney decided that it was going to try to put its finger on the scale when it has a complicated relationship in this complicated state with an, in which it is an enormous employer and has a lot of land right and so i'm saying i don't see how republicans or desantis could have left them with no consequence for coming off the sidelines now maybe this is a terrible kind oh they overplayed their hand they did too much and they what's more they did something un, unconstitutional and they're going to live to regret it and it's a terrible thing and it's a violation of principle but i just don't think i think it's sort of understandable as a matter of understanding how politics works that you don't you don't if you I, I do just, nothing I, I, okay i can totally envision what would have happened if they did nothing nothing well, it's it's like saying, well, Novartis is saying that Governor Murphy did something wrong. Governor Murphy has to respond. No, he doesn't. It's the largest employer in the state, right? One of the largest. Does he have to respond publicly and get in a mud throwing match with this company? Absolutely not. There's but plenty of Novartis, back channels that exist for it. No. Is Novartis saying anything about Governor Murphy? Of course Murphy? not. This is the hypothetical I'm trying to make up. There's a lot well, of so major give, industries. So give me a reel. States. Give me a reel. What do you give mean? Me a, give me a comparable reel. Why does oh, there have to be a comparable? We're talking about a hypothetical. The hypothetical is they do nothing because that's what t- usually happens. It's not as though this is bizarre that conservatives are somehow never confronted with major corporations that have liberal politics at their center, at their core, and their, their culture, and that they speak out about it. That's status quo. What's happening now is, a, is different. That's what's new. So the reason, so the idea that he didn't have to do anything, I mean, that's, that would be normal. What he's doing now is new and more provocative than what I we do typically not, see out of conservative and Republican uh, governors. I do not agree with this argument for this reason. Corporations do not take positions on controversial legislation for, the, uh, for an overwhelming part. They often take positions on legislation that has a direct effect on their business in the sense that they well, we've been talking lobbying. about woke corporations for a decade they've been, corporate corporate politics has been moral positioning has been best practice in corporate politics national corporations multi multinational corporations well, for and a the decade. boycotts of state whole for states when they don't remember georgia not you know because the voting laws don't pass i mean they they, they yeah. are acting on their own political agenda, which yeah, has an and, impact and the response voters. has been precisely nothing. This what's unique and new and why there is no comparable example is because Republican politicians in positions of authority haven't used that position of authority to exact revenge. And we all know that that's what this is. I mean, yeah, there are back channel things that you do in such circumstances, like you say, don't, you know, you want X variants. 
you need X variants now, I'm you're not you're not going to get that. Just so you know, you know, we're not going to look favorably on that. Well, look, it's the I, same he, thing. Wait a minute, it's the same thing. It's punishing them for taking a stand. You're saying that's okay as long as it's pro. I mean, not okay, but you're saying such things happen as long as it's quiet and under the table. I just don't think you get your nose bloodied that way because we're staring. You, what you're about to, you were saying, is that they're going to mm-hmm. renegotiate this down to something that's not nearly that's not as bloody. muscular. Yeah, but DeSantis that's not going to bloody like anybody's nose. It's the third time the riot bill undermined by a federal judge that thrown out by a federal judge getting Donald Trump reinstated to Twitter legislatively. He does this a lot. He hasn't paid any consequence for it, but there's a cumulative effect to looking like you, you talk a big game and don't deliver. Don't, I don't agree. I think that's the part of the culture war. The culture war is fought through symbolic action in a lot of ways and I don't see how DeSantis is going to suffer one whit for, on anybody's part. In other words, like conservatives aren't going to be mad at him. They he did what he had to do, and what's more, he's now taking shots from people. They're not they're not going to look unfavorably on him if the result in a year is that you know they made quiet they made a quiet deal and and everything is going to go through normally it's not who who is going to stand there and say oh this is terrible what they like is that he 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 fired a shot across their their bow and what's more you know this is the open question about a guy like DeSantis doing what he did will he make another company think twice the next time that's why you do it now again i'm not talking about principle here i'm really not and maybe i should cuz you know we are we're obviously not political strategists and we don't what happens inside the republican party is not you know electorally is not our our concern we're a 501c3 nonprofit and that's not our bailiwick i'm just saying you know andrew cuomo spent 10 years punishing people, you know, if they raised an eyebrow in his direction. And we detested it. What? And we detested it. But, okay, but he also got things done and people were scared of him and until everything went south on him, you know. That's a cautionary tale if I ever heard one. No, where? In In what way? The man's a disgrace. But he's not a disgrace because of that. He's not a disgrace because of what I'm talking about. He's not a disgrace well, because of contract the because of that. Yeah, yeah I think okay, it's fair enough. Exact because reason of that. why right. he was destroyed. <laughs> but, but look, I, I'll, I'll put it to you this way. I mean, I don't know when and not if when a liberal governor wants to change the corporate culture uh, inside of I don't you know Chick Fil A or something somewhere. DeSantis's name is going to come up, and this this example is going to come up. Is that is that him paying some sort of uh, price in, in his public image? I don't know, but I, I don't I don't like it regardless uh, whether or not it, it, it ends up being a savvy move for him. And part of what I don't like about it is that you can tell the mindlessness behind it by its supporters, because when I express my disagreement with it, or, or just a reservation about it. I've come much more t- t- over to Noah's, Noah's side of this question. 
when I said, well, I'm not entirely comfortable with the governor going after a, a, a corporation for, for weighing in on a political issue, um, then I'm told, uh, well, you've got to toughen up. You don't understand uh, what, what we're up against in Florida. And it's like, I don't need a lecture on, on you know, what, what you're up against in terms of schools and, and, uh, and, and you know, teaching about identity. I'm, I'm, I'm plenty up on, on that. I'm talking about what's, what's viable and, and what, as Noah says, it will be effective. Um, so I, I think that exposes, that kind of attitude exposes the sort of theatrical quality of all this. Well, that's the, the sort of heady sense of victory that those people have right now. I agree. I've, I've heard that as well, Abe. Um, comes after a long time feeling like conservatives are the ones who've been sucker punched by institutions, including corporations, for such a long time. And I do mean sucker punched, not like a, not a fair fight in a lot of these places where conservatives are often the minority, whether they're the employees or the, the staff or faculty. They're certainly not. Uh, generally the majority within the corporate leadership and uh, particularly post George Floyd, where co woke capital has become a real thing that you can document and, and conservatives have to endure if they are in those corporations. I think this is one of those moments where they see somebody swinging back and they like, they just like the swinging. They're not really thinking about the target. They're not thinking about the long-term, uh, the, the next battle that has to be fought. It's just, look, someone's in the ring and they're swinging. It's it's very similar to the feeling when, when Trump started going on the attack when he was a candidate. I don't think it's, I mean, I'm not saying whether it's bad or good, but I understand the, the kind of sense of like, yeah, you know, get them. I'm not sure it's good. For, I know it's not good for the country, but I understand the impulse. Okay. Um, oddly, I don't agree. I don't disagree with any of you. Um, I think stuff like this happens more than you realize in the Soto Voce way that Noah was talking about, and that um, and that uh, um, the one thing about the shot across the bow thing I'm talking about is that Disney didn't see it coming. To be fair, they thought this was a. I mean, Chapek though Chapek. The head of Disney was nervous about doing it because it was a change in his approach, right? And he had run the theme park, so he had dealt with Florida politics and all of that. He probably thought he could get off clean with no with no controversy, and that he was going to quiet down his, his difficulty, you know, by doing what he did here. And now he's going to be wrapped up or he and a corporation are going to be wrapped up in negotiations for a year that are going to be complicated and costly and boring and distracting and, and, and involving. And, and, and while he's trying to establish himself as, you know, as a, as a, as a tight, as a corporate Titan on the order of Bob Iger, the man that he replaced. And in that sense, it's interesting. Like, you know, this notion that, that you give in, as you give in to woke, you give in to wokeness because it's scary and it's going to punish you. This is where I'm asking you this. Like, so do, doesn't there need to be some kind of a counter scare? I mean, it just depends on there is there is an element of menace to wokeness, most certainly. Written books about it, well, plural. Yeah. I don't see that menace in what Disney said about this, this particular education bill. It was a protest, a, a protest against a victory. They had lost. 
and were protesting their laws. I did not see the menace or the threat from this particular, I saw, I saw in fact, a vulnerable target that was a target of opportunity for DeSantis to make an example of. I don't see it. It, it may look that, but there was no teeth to anything Disney was saying. Okay. All right. So let's move on because this is an unsolved. And, you know, we'll know. Proof of the pudding will be in the eating because this is really about whether the politics helps and and whether the, uh, let's say, the um, surrender of a certain type of principle is was worth a candle and we'll have again just like macron we'll have a better sense of this in a year than we do than we do now um so uh apparently also news tonight elon musk's 46 billion dollar offer for twitter or in the new york times is being seriously considered which i think means it's gonna happen like, I don't think you say that offer is being seriously considered if it's not going to happen. And if the, if the, these apparently he has a tripartite funding mechanism where he is going to put up 10 billion, he's raising, I, 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 I can't remember the details, but the offer was higher than he had originally said. It's 46 billion. It's a real thing. He's got real backing. He's got real money behind it. Uh, that that will be an amazing thing, it seems to me. Like, first of all, it'll be the first major takeover of a social media company ever. The whole way social media companies have worked is that they've been swallowed up by other social media companies, right? Like uh, Facebook threatened by Instagram and WhatsApp buys Instagram and WhatsApp and just takes them into its maw right or um, i think whatsapp is owned by facebook maybe I'm, maybe yes I'm wrong. it is okay it is. okay okay and and so it's here you meta, actually though. have it's all meta, meta i'm sorry meta so so here we have a company uh that uh has had flat revenues and a flat stock price for for a decade that is the uncommon plaything of the elite but has not figured out how to expand its appeal beyond that and has not made its stockholders money and it's not and here you have a guy coming along who says all right i'm going to actually give you real money like you you're now you're now going to make good on the investment that you put here because i want this company because it's been run badly and part of the reason as we know is that uh that it has become a censor according to musk but he has other ideas i'm sure he has other thoughts about it and all of that and he's an uncommonly interesting player and this is the first real move that he's made outside his focus on technological innovations the car spacex the hyperloop all that stuff that he's been that he's been connected to uh what does anybody think I mean, well at the end hey please i just at the end of the day the poor guy's get if he wins he's gonna end up with twitter <laughs> Okay, uh, but he wants well, Twitter. I, I love it, not because I think he's going to save Twitter or fix Twitter. I don't care at all about the fate of Twitter. I I, I love it because I want to see the the, the 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 liberal Twitter heads continue to explode. I mean, 
I want to see how many of the ones who claim this is like every every time a Republican wins a, a presidential election and all the celebrities claim they have to now move out of the country. I want to see how many of these you know crazy liberals on Twitter who have said, if Elon Musk buys this, that's it. That's it. I will I'll have to leave and I'll take all my followers with me. I, I'm guessing they probably will not make good on that promise. This I mean, is going to kill truth social. Truth social. <sighs> and get her. All those alternatives to uh, to uh, Twitter that the the right tried to create, all of a sudden it becomes Musk owns it. It just destroys the business model for half a dozen little Twitter competitors. But you know, this is a more complicated matter than people realize because if you don't have some curation, if you don't have some censorship, if you don't have some content, people watching content, Twitter's going to be porn. You know, it's like it's like if you were on like a secondary email service in the you know late '90s, early 2000s, like I was on Sprynet. At some point, those things were destroyed because they didn't have a proper kind of filtering system, and basically, you just got porn spam all day and all night. Okay, but it, couldn't it, okay, block sorry. it, and then they just collapsed. You just went to Gmail because Gmail had some kind of a filter to make that not happen. And if you don't have, will be there'll be kitty porn on Twitter. Well, if Twitter is no porn, content. John. Twitter is elite intellectual <laughs> porn right now. And so, what Elon Musk might do? I mean, of course, they're going to keep those kind of filters on there. That's that's you know, I I don't think that's what anyone is complaining about. He's going to allow people to say controversial things that that up till now. You know, liberal readers of the New York Times who follow all their favorite reporters and celebrities on Twitter have never had to confront and they won't hide them behind, you know, content warnings or all the things they've been doing lately to try to bury the content that might be seen as controversial. But but I thought Twitter is is literally poor now as well. I mean, I've had bogus followers that I've clicked on and then said, Uh oh, gee, I didn't realize that's on Twitter. Yeah, no, I mean, it's after dark. I'm sure there is there is some, but you understand like the flooding, the 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 way that that stuff can flood um, because it's you know bot created. Uh, you know, Twitter didn't used to be a place where liberals could be spared concern. It, this is all new, and this is all part of the general thing we haven't even talked about, which you know Obama now committing himself to you know the fight against disinformation and misinformation and all of that, and this this decision by sort of high minded people among you know among the the liberal intelligentsia to essentially support the idea of uh, censoring those who are gulling the American people into believing false things. Like, if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Which is something that was said by President of the United States and was the single most knowingly false statement about a major piece of legislation that anyone has ever said. I mean, he that was just up- one of the highlights. <clears throat> you know, Syria has no more chemical weapons and Mitt Romney's g- uh, guilty of negligent homicide. A couple of gems there, too. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, the the notion, I mean, this this is like a, a thing that we will say forever because it's, it's like the it's like the um, the horrors of questioning the legitimacy of elections. 
and how somehow this mysteriously only started with Trump questioning the legitimacy of elections when the entire Democratic Party questioned the legitimacy of the 2000 election, when, when, when various people wanted Congress not to certify, wanted the vice president of the United States not to certify Bush's re-election victory in 2004 because of hij- supposed hijinks in Ohio, because Stacey Abrams claims that she won when she lost by 50,000 votes. You know, that, 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 this, I don't, I don't really like both sides of them or all this, but that, this specific thing where it becomes entirely convenient to deny your role in the creation of a legitimacy crisis, like the misinformation and disinformation crisis, which is the entire game of the left or liberals in the left is just, you know, beyond beneath contempt. Like if they would actually be willing to confront and face what it, what they have contributed to this, we could actually have a serious conversation about how to move beyond it. But if it just becomes a sheer partisan weapon, then, you know, why, why should anybody, you know, why it's unilateral disarmament to say, oh, well, it's really terrible what Trump is saying about the election. Cause it is, but I mean, Stacey Abrams is like the, superstar of the democratic party entirely because of a false claim that she that she won an election and here we are this is this is and elon musk is that entire brand of thinking that is going choking slowly and slowly and slowly choking the left's capacity to to deal with the fact that people think about things in ways other than they do but i will also add Musk is not a conservative either. I mean, he's libertarian-ish, and even there, he kind of strays from. So he'll be good for conservatives too on Twitter. He'll 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 be he'll be good because he'll bring some weird outsider, quirky, you know, crazy Elon Musk perspective, the same perspective that you know has him uh, privatizing missions to space. I mean, this is a good it's a good thing in an industry that constantly pats itself on the back for all the disruption it's doing, and the fact that they're all freaking out over a very tiny. A disruption like this is telling. Um, but I think it'll be good for both sides to have to deal with some churn on social media. Let me just say this about the future of America and Elon Musk. Donald Trump and maybe the liberals who hate Elon Musk so much, should they should all be very, very happy that he was not born in the United States. Because I think, Abe, you yourself said last week when we were sort of talking about this privately that Musk is going to be a major American political figure. He cannot be president because he was born in Pretoria. But um, if he were, this notion that like everybody understands that he's a crazy freak and a lunatic and all of that, like he is the perfect post-Trump politician in some ways. Were could he were he to be the sort of person who could be the post-Trump politician? With an even messier personal life, if you can, if it can be believed. Well, that's my point, right? right. So messy personal lives no longer are, are no longer, uh, you know, d- disqualifying. Um, but 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 with a more legitimate and impressive claim to success, right? Anyhow, so we have completed this episode, the first and maybe the last episode of Commentary After Dark, with our. Uh, if you liked it. I'm really glad if you didn't, don't worry. We're going to be back to normal tomorrow. 
uh, Tuesday. Uh, so thanks for listening. For Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz, keep the candle burning.